This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. But how do we find Buddha's enlightened experience ourselves? I think that's the real question. Anywhere, anytime. You know, the Western religions are called, if you study these things, world religion, sociology, religion, history, religions of the book, the three Western monotheistic religions. I'm not going to remind you what they are. You can remember, perhaps, the three Western religions that we know so little about, but seem more familiar to us than the Eastern religions. Religions of the book. Buddhism is not a religion of the book. Of course, there are voluminous sutra scriptures, a hundred volumes at least of the sutra scriptures, Buddhist canon, and so on, sutras, Vinaya, and Abhidharma, and later commentaries, and all that. But it's not a religion of the book. Buddhism is based on the Buddha's enlightenment experience, the enlightenment experience that Buddha promised anybody can experience by pursuing, cultivating, developing such a path. I don't like to say following such a path. Buddha didn't advocate followership. He didn't want to be worshipped. He didn't want to have images of himself and so on. Of course, human nature being what it was later, things like that came about. But Buddha promised that anybody, I mean, Buddha was kind of scientific, an early scientist in a way, among other things. Let me just float this here since we're in Silicon Valley. and you know, Many of you probably have engineering or scientific bent. As does Sharla, actually. I know Sharla's quite the mathematician. If you don't know, I just want to mention that. She's very sharp. Buddha's teaching was very scientific. He said, if you reproduce this experiment of the Eightfold Path, you can replicate the same results in yourself. Is that not the essence of the scientific method? Not needing any beliefs, cosmology, creed, dogma. He didn't say you have to believe in rebirth. He didn't say you have to be a vegetarian. He didn't even say you have to sit and meditate cross-legged till your knees and back fall out. Meditation is about awareness practice, not about posture, after all. So if we replicate Buddha's experiment, we can reproduce his result, and millions have. 
Not just only one begotten son of Buddha, you know, like Jesus, the only begotten son. We have to find the Christos, the light in all of us, the Godhead in all of us, in each of us. That's what we call in Buddhism, Tathagata Garbha, Buddha nature, the innate Buddhiness in all sentient beings. That we're all endowed with the luminous Buddha nature, not just human beings, not just Buddhists, not just our friends and neighbors here in the upper middle path. <laughs> Look around the room, friends and neighbors. Not just human beings, all sentient beings endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. This is a radical egalitarian democratic war cry in 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago before women could vote, before blacks were franchised, and so forth. Buddha said anybody could become as enlightened as he did, male or female, young or old. Let me go further, and he may not have said this, Buddhist or otherwise. You don't have to be a Buddhist to become a Buddha. If you replicate this experiment, you can reproduce these results. Then you'd be better than most Buddhists who are still just joiners of the newest fad, the newest club. Why become a mere Buddhist when you become a Buddha? So in Tibetan, in the Dzogchen tradition, and I'm just translating from the Tibetan here, I never had an original thought in my life. I don't know, did you? In the Havadra Tantra, the Dzogchen Tantra, it says, we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to realize that fact, to realize who and what we are, realize our true nature, our original nature, our Buddhiness. Even calling it Buddha nature makes it sound too foreign. Oh, Buddha. A long dead white male that used to live over there in the East Coast somewhere. East. Buddha. That's heresy. Buddha's not outside. Buddha's not a person. Buddha is a mirror. It's an icon, archetype of enlightenment in which to see our own enlightened nature. That's what the teacher is for. Not to collect mirrors, to see our own enlightened nature. Not to collect gurus, teachers, and so forth, and experiences. But to look in the mirror of the enlightenment experience and recognize who and what we truly are. We're all Buddhas by nature, not Buddhists. Buddhas by nature, according to the non-dualistic or direct access teaching of Mahamudra Dzogchen, the non-dual teaching of Zen. We can also find this deep in the Theravadan scriptures, the unconditioned, our true nature, the unconditioned, of which all conditions are like the form of the unconditioned nature of all things. That is our luminous Buddha nature. Beyond Buddha, isms and schisms or forms, not just Buddha statue sitting in the garden meditating. You know, Buddha didn't sit and meditate all day. He was a social activist also for 45 years walking all over India. This is what my new book's about, that meditation and prayer and yoga are very good and important, and we all need to add this contemplative dimension to our busy, westernized, modern life, of course. But it's not enough. We all have to make a positive contribution in the world and participate. No one of us can do it all, but no one is exempt from participating. And we're all in the same boat. We all rise or fall, sink or swim together. This is the raison d'etre, the reason for being of Mahayana Buddhism, the great vehicle of universal deliverance, realizing how can I be happy and at peace if my family, my neighbors, my country, and my world is in crisis, at war, and environmental disaster. How can I rest on my nirvanic laurels? So it's a balance between working on ourselves and working together you know, to transform in the world. 
Awakening ourselves awakens the world. As the Zen teaching says, according to Zen teaching, Buddha said, you know, we often hear people say, Buddha said, Buddha said, but I think it's good to have context. According to the Zen teaching, Buddha said, when I was awakened, all were awakened, even the rocks and the trees. Now, that's a very powerful statement if it resonates with you. If it doesn't, never mind. He's talking about primordial perfection. As the Christian mystics sang, I forget her name, all is well and all shall be well in this best of all possible worlds. This is not to ignore the horrors and injustices, world hunger, racism, and other things in our benighted world, of course. And yet, we need to balance this by seeing the other side of the darkness, which is the light, the shadows and nothing but light. We're not all bad. If we get to know ourselves better, we might learn to love and appreciate ourselves. Like it says in Tibetan, um, the Dzogchen Master Longchenpa, the vast, infinite master, he said, of course, in Buddhism, we always get stuck with the word mind when we talk in English. The heart-mind is magnificent in its natural state. Appreciate it as it is. You know, we don't all have to put our best foot forward all the time. Authenticity is what he's talking about, friends, not mind. The heart, mind, spirit is gorgeous, magnificent in its natural state. Appreciate it as it is. That means we have to see it as it is, though. How can we see it as it is when we're so bent out of shape, when we're intoxicated, when our views are distorted, when we have short-sightedness, long-sightedness, far-sightedness, near-sightedness, jaundice, see everything, white things is yellow. When we're bent out of shape, we can't tell upside from down. How can we see things as they are? Which, by the way, is the definition of wisdom in Buddhism, the first step on the Eightfold Path. Right view or, or, or wise view, clear visions, is wisdom in Buddhism, right? Seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. This is not a theory about emptiness or impermanence or shunyata or cosmology or rebirth or infinite lifetimes. We're not talking about omniscience or any magical powers. Wisdom in Buddhism, prajna, punya, jnana, is seeing things as they are, a combination of clear awareness and direct comprehension or understanding things, insight and awareness. But how can we clarify our vision? How is it true that when Buddha was awakened, all were awakened? When most of us feel like crap most of the time. I mean, how many prescriptions for antidepressants are there in America today? For Ritalin, for 5 million children, and so on. How can we see things as they are when our, our view, our gaze, our attention is so scattered, distracted, and obscured? Obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, the traditional three poisons taught by Buddhism. Obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, pride, and jealousy, the five poisons. Obscured by all kinds of prejudices, interpretations, and misknowing. According to our school of Buddhism, again, context is all important. Ignorance, not knowing, misknowing, avidya. Avidya is the root of all evil. Now, you will hear in Buddhist teachings, I feel like I'm uh, giving the, the, the law thing at the beginning of the court trial. You will hear in this trial many other reports from different learned witnesses of different schools. 
But <laughs> you will hear that desire or attachment is the root of all suffering. That is actually not really a very good translation or understanding. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion, avidya, is the root poison. That's why Buddhism stresses wisdom. Wisdom is the antidote to avidya, ignorance. Wisdom is the antidote, the panacea for all that ails us. It's the ignorance, it's the not knowing that brings the desire and aversion, greed and hatred, desire and aversion. From not knowing, at the center of the wheel of becoming is avidya, is ignorance. That's why enlightenment is the panacea, is the cure-all, wisdom, the wisdom of enlightenment, Buddha's enlightenment experience. The archetypal enlightenment experience, represented by Buddha as a symbol that we also can have by reproducing experiment. We can replicate those results. We can become awakened, enlightened too, and realize our Buddha nature, our inherent freedom of being and completeness. Realizing peace at any speed, inner peace, is beyond any speed. We can be centered and experience inner serenity and fulfillment, inner peace, at any speed, even if we have to hurry sometimes. You know, sometimes you have to hurry. No problem. You don't always have to walk in slow motion like a zombie, like I see sometimes at certain meditation retreats that I've been in charge of. (laughs) I don't know if they've taken too much medication or they're practicing mindful walking. You never know. You know, people, they're always walking around in slippers. They never put on their shoes for 10 days. It's very, um, you know, it has certain commonalities with other uh, institutions. (laughs) I mean, I was in a three-year retreat. I didn't put on my shoes for three years. Walked around in slippers all the time. It was like a 30-year-old old fuddy-duddy. It was very amusing. But we were trying, treading the path, hopefully. So how can we clear our vision? That's where Buddhism, I think, has a, a real you know, secret to offer. Not the secret that's not a secret of power, positive thinking that we see in the marketplace today, but really the secret ingredient of mindful awareness, the most powerful force in the world, spiritual consciousness, mindful awareness. It's not atomic energy. It's, you know, it's the mind that cracked the atom and released the atomic energy that was already there. And it's spiritual self-realization or insight and wisdom that cracks the ego and releases the energy, the infinite energy that we have all contained, caught up in holding our ego trip together. That's why enlightened masters are so universally, regardless of tradition, buoyant, spontaneous, free, creative, and at the same time peaceful. I'm a skeptic. I'm a New York Jew. I mean, on my parents' side, anyway. (laughs) But I know at least one Lama that never sleeps. Now, I'm not here to tell you fairy stories about flying and you know, past lives or anything else, which, you know, I mean, everything's fine, anything's possible. But I've known him since he was 10 years old. He's 44 now. His own is Drukcha He never sleeps. I mean, he might doze for half an hour, but he beds in pajamas and night and not part of his routine. He meditates and he's at rest and he's the 12th incarnation. He's been doing this a long time, according to his tradition. And he doesn't have to sleep. He says sleeping makes him weak or tired. The spirit is the most powerful thing in the world. 
I have seen this. I've lived with him since he was 10 years old. I've known him. I was his English teacher in the early 1970s at his monastery in Darjeeling. This, I'm not making this up. You know, I don't tell stories of magical mystery from Tibet stories like some do. Anything's possible. The awakened spirit, the, the Buddha mind, awareness itself, awareness, which is able to capital A, is the most powerful force in the world. That is Buddha's secret ingredient. And that's what we practice. Even the first day we learn to meditate. It's like skiing. You know, one of the great things about skiing, and I, I think you have skiing here, right, up in Tahoe or somewhere, is that you can ski on the first day. There's the bunny slope. You can ski. You can go fast. It's exciting. Skiing. You know, it's hard to get up on a surfboard the first day. It's hard to get up on water skis maybe the first day. But skiing, you can actually do the first day. That's like meditation. Cultivating awareness you can do right away. Now, you might not experience blissful peace and ease. You might not experience the concentrative absorptions, the eight jhanas or other stages of development of insight and so on. But you can definitely experience something, which is the point of transformative spirituality, not just congregational spirituality, joining and community and good works, but transformative personal practice. So we can become like these archetypal masters of the past, Buddha or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be, or Jesus or whoever our spiritual superheroes may be. No problem. Meditation, awareness, practice, cultivating mindfulness is the active ingredient in all practices. Prayer without awareness is just parroting prayers. It has very little benefit. It's awareness, it's the mindfulness, the concentration in the prayer, the intention, the concentration that makes prayers active. Chanting, I mean, parrots can chant. My late guru, the 16th Buddha Karmapa, in his monastery in Sikkim, he had hundreds of birds in an aviary uh, on his rooftop. He was famous kind of amateur ornithologist. He loved birds. Being an old Tibetan guy from Tibet, he didn't speak English. He, I mean, he called my parents mother and father, which they loved, but those were maybe the only two words he knew. He used to say that those birds were the reincarnation of the, 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 the lazy or fallen monks that he had in the last life. <laughs> but he, they still were, you know, they were still um, chanting. He taught them to chant mantra. So they used to chant his mantra, Kamapacheno. You'd go up on the roof and he'd be there feeding them and they'd be going, Kamapacheno, Kamapacheno. You know, like kind of a parrot. But prayers without attention without intention and attention, without mindfulness, concentration, awareness, a very little power. Yoga, without awareness, it's only a calisthenic. But with awareness, you know, the eight-limbed yoga and all, there's so many levels to yoga. Yoga means union with the divine or union with the natural state. Tibetan definition, union with the natural state, since we are missing the divine up there in Tibet. He's down in India in many ways, faces. Yoga without awareness is just mere calisthenics, good only for momentary health. So awareness is the active ingredient. That's why I think meditation and yoga are so popular in this country today. These are the active transformative practices, meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, the samadhi that comes with it that people are really getting a lot out of. It's a different kind of exercise, isn't it? Including like the corpse pose at the end of yoga. My wife says, I hate meditating. I say, but you love the corpse pose. She said, no, but that's yoga. And after doing yoga for an hour, lying down the corpse pose for five or ten minutes, 
is almost effortless. That's meditation. That's why a little chanting or a little bowing or some supportive practices could be very helpful to get to that effortless meditation. So it's not such a struggle. That's why in Tibetan Buddhism, we always have a meditation session divided into three parts. Just a little practical tip. There's the warm-up exercises, there's the main practice, and there's the cooling down, like exercise, physical exercise. The warm-up exercises like praying or bowing, altar practice or chanting and breathing exercises to warm up and relax, to turn our busy, worldly minds to the Dharma, the preliminaries first. And then the main non-conceptual awareness alone, naked awareness practice of just being without forms and prayers and words. And then third, going out singing, praying and chanting, generating loving kindness, sharing the merits, the positivities, concluding all in our prayers and so on. So three parts of a practice. So we do a little warm-up practice, like the little yoga, spiritual yogas of praying and breathing and chanting and whatever, bowing. And then can just rest in the nature of awareness with less action. We, the warm-up practices help us undo our habitual, our big habit to overdo things. So we can just be. Then we can be a little. Then we go out with a little more doing that we can take it into the world through spiritual activism, compassionate action, service, karma, yoga, and so forth in our life. So I recommend that to you, especially if you're new at meditating. And I know here you're well-trained here in the Bay Area, Yana. But I just thought that that might be a little helpful to realize it's very hard sometimes to just get up in the morning and meditate without a little warm-up, spiritual warm-up. It's very hard just to come home from work, leap into lotus position, and meditate when the momentum of the day is still running. So I like to, you know, come home and then maybe change my clothes or take a shower or exercise or do yoga and then begin a meditation session with a little chanting and praying and lighting a candle, a little altar practice, get the senses involved, you know, get involved. Take this momentum of the day of intense karmic involvement and turn it to spiritual involvement. And then after that, turning it to spiritual involvement with the warm-up exercises, the preliminaries, then get into the non-doing, the just being and awareness alone. And in that way, balancing doing and being in our practice, effort and non-effort some directed or structured practice and some more structureless, trusting, choiceless, total awareness practice. A very good balance of doing and being, effort and effortless in our meditation. What we call in Tibetan balancing meditation with non-meditation. Non-meditation is a very sophisticated term. It doesn't mean what everybody's doing in general, just running around following the nose like animal. It means an effortless awareness, like when concentration is stable and it stays where it's placed. In the beginning, we have to cultivate placement of concentration, right? Placing it on an object of attention like the breath or a candle flame. Placing it and getting it to stay there. And when it wanders, bringing it back with the leash of mindfulness, bringing the wandering attention back to the object of concentration. After a while, it gets more stable and can just rest there. And then we can use it deeper to get insight into nature reality, wisdom and understanding. And the deepest meditation is the balance of concentration and insight, where it's panoramic and yet focused. Panoramic awareness, yet focused, not spaced out. So the Dzogchen teachings, and I want to get to the question period because that's really the juiciest part usually. 
The Dzogchen teachings, of course, are the natural great perfection teachings of Tibet are, of course, based in the root teachings, the Sutrayana, the Theravadan teachings, and the Mahayana Sutras of the Bodhisattva way of universal enlightenment and thinking of others before oneself and so on, compassion and wisdom inseparable, the Mahayana Bodhisattva path. But the Dzogchen teachings take it to another level of non-dual direct access enlightenment now in this way. Having already understood a little bit, gotten into the spiritual game, cleaned up our life and our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and good deeds, through concentration and collectedness, straightening our mind out like a Fletcher straightens the arrows. We straighten our mind out through meditation. Then comes a more wisdom understanding of interconnectedness and impermanence. So building on that, three basic Buddhist trainings that you're all familiar with, ethics, shila, samadhi, concentration, meditation, and third, wisdom, yes, shila, samadhi, panya, yes, ethical discipline, meditation, wisdom, built from the ground up, the three liberating trainings that if you unpack it, it form the Eightfold Path. Buddhism 101, the three liberating trainings of the Eightfold Path. The non-dual teachings talk about swooping down from above through view into the meditation of non-meditation, of natural awareness, and then to action or conduct in the world. Not building up, climbing up the spiritual path gradually from below, cleaning up our act through ethical self-discipline and morality and virtue and cultivating the positives and relinquishing the negatives and purifying ourselves of obscuring palatias and all, leading to more concentration and clarity, leading to wisdom and insight. But swooping down from above with the natural awareness, the innate awareness, our natural spirituality, it's already there, like through interest. When we're interested, we have natural mindfulness, natural awareness. Swooping down from above with the view of the great perfection of seeing things just as they are, beyond having to improve or purify or tweak them at all. Acceptance, clear seeing and understanding. Swooping down with the view into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being. And noticing all the karmic conditionings that make it hard for us to just be. And seeing what we get out of following all these impulses. And so we can choose more intelligently and be more free and less reactive, more proactive, less reactive. Like through mindful awareness, creating some space between stimulus and response. Some space for mindfulness to give us choice between stimulus and knee-jerk blind response. Create the sacred pause, as Tara Brock calls it in her wonderful book, Radical Acceptance. Create the sacred pause through mindfulness. Give our mind more spacious time between stimulus and response to choose a more skillful, intelligent response rather than react, respond proactively. So swooping down with the view of things as they are, clear vision, everything a lawful unfolding just as it is, good and bad, beyond good and bad, as it is into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being wholly, totally, incandescently, lucidly present. And through that comes the natural Buddha activity, selfless, beneficial, bodhisattva activity, liberating activity. View, meditation, action. Beginning with the view. Now this is actually based in the Buddhist approach, the Eightfold Path, remember, does not begin with Shila. It begins from above with wisdom. Yes? Step one and two on the Eightfold Path are wisdom. Clear vision, right view is number one. And right intention or right 
Understanding is number two. That's the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. If we had a board, it would be easy to see, yes. And then the next three, right speech, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then the next three, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So Buddha himself said, you know, it must begin with the view, to understand a little bit, to guide the meditation practice and the good deeds. So theory and practice go together, like the two wings of a bird. Is it authentically true for you? I mean, you can follow someone else, but you're responsible for deciding whether to follow or not to follow. Don't fool yourself and disempower yourself by saying, they made me do it. James Jones made me do it. Go to Jonestown or Waco. Bullshit. Who decided that? Except oneself. Don't. Uh, The late great Dujum Rinpoche said, wrap around, this is such a Tibetan image, I know, I love it. Maybe I'll just close with this. Wrap around your own head the rope, like an ox, the rope, let's say the leash that leads from your nose. Wrap around your own head the leash that leads from the ring in your nose, O oxen. Don't hand the leash to someone else unless you're absolutely sure. And that's very hard to do. Even the Buddha, I was just reading something, some notes that Charlotte gave me today, because Charlotte was telling me that the Buddha made some jokes, so we were looking into the sutras to try to find some, which we haven't found yet, but I'm sure she'll... (laughs) She'll find some if she has to retranslate all this short, middle, and long discourses. But I read, there's a, a, an interesting story in there where um, Sabuti, who was a great enlightened um, arhat master, you know, not a schlepper, a real arhat master, I think it was Sabuti, he said um, something about the Buddha is the ultimate, greatest, most enlightened, omniscient being or something. Of course, there was a whole paragraph repetitive in the old style with all these superlatives. He was telling it to some faithful people that were questioning that. And Buddha said to Sabuti, how do you know? Have you checked with the minds of all the enlightened ones of the past, present, and future, and all the enlightened arhats to know that I am the most supreme, enlightened, blah, 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 blah? See, he busted Sabuti, who I think was probably an arhat by then. So that's important. It's important to be humble. You know, There's always somebody who's um, more humble than you. <laughs> There's always some somebody, you know. So in our tradition, in a lineage, we always it's very hard to be too arrogant or proud. When we think about our masters and those who have gone before and how, how great they are. How deep and how generous and how gracious and how wise and how they practiced for so many decades, then we can't take ourselves too seriously after a few, you know, being veteran of a few foreign retreats. So in closing, I just want to quote the great uh, Buddhist saying, you just can't believe everything that you think. Thank you all. Good night. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? 
What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.